I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys will give Trump's trade policy a final grade now that all the data is in. Plus, USTR is staffing up, and we'll explain what it all signals about the Biden administration's new approach to trade policy. And the WTO is on the verge of selecting a new historic director general. We'll break all that down and what it means for the organization. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, it's that time. It's time to talk final Trump trade numbers. Okay, we've got these numbers. What about them? Scott, you got you to jump in here. What about them? Well, certainly we have the size of the current account deficit or trade deficit, which reached its highest level since 2008 under President Trump's leadership. Although after four years of consistently saying that the current account deficit or the trade deficit isn't all about trade policy. It would be unfair of me to criticize the trade policy for it now, and I shouldn't do that. In fact, the current account deficit is very high because of principally the way we're spending money as a country and the extraordinary stimulus, fiscal stimulus that has been provided to keep the economy afloat during the COVID uh, pandemic, which has filtered its way into import purchases and therefore worsened current account deficit. What I found is the more interesting number uh, from the Trump administration's tenure is that we have a at least a, a relative high, if not a record high, of Americans, as polled by Gallup, that view foreign trade positively. 79% call it an opportunity for economic growth, which is reassuring and refreshing that despite you know, steady criticism of our trade agreements, that they, they're all bad deals and that they hurt the country. The fact is four to five Americans have concluded that foreign trade is a, is a good thing and it, it helps America. That's good for the trade guys ratings too, right? Well, we, <laughs> we don't know if it translates. We hope it does. <laughs> it's consistent with our beliefs. That's for sure. Hopefully 70% of our listeners think that, <laughs> think that we're doing a good job. That would be a good thing. I, you know, I, he- I heard it's much higher than that. I hear they're very happy with the host, the trade guys, you know, they waver depending on what you guys say. Yeah, you know. B plus, uh, yeah, B minus, yeah. Stuff I get like it. that, you know. <laughs> host always gets an A, yeah. So. You got it, exactly, exactly. So, but now that the final numbers are in, you know, what grade would you give Trump's trade policy, Bill? Uh, you know, I, I almost, you know, this is a scary question for Bill Reinch, but what grade would you give him? Probably F, F. To, to the surprise of nobody. I mean, I, I think I mean Scott made an important point, which is that the n- numbers demonstrate that trade policy doesn't have all that much to do with the deficit. Macroeconomics has more to do with the deficit, and we've known about that before. We've talked about it before. You know that what I've said countless times: if you want to reduce the trade deficit, have a recession. That's usually what does it. People stop buying, and and people haven't stopped buying. But in his own terms, since he linked the two. I think from his own standpoint, he has to be treated as a failure. He said it was going to solve all these problems. He said it was going to he's going to turn it into a surplus, and he didn't. So F. Now, you know, that said, he did one thing that I think was useful, and that is he refocused public attention 
on the issue. Uh, and yeah. we are the beneficiaries. Right. Cause we didn't have a show before that. So like, you know, then we, you know, <laughs> because tariff man, you know, refocused the issue, the trade guys were born. So this was very good for us. So we give him an A for that. Well, he, he gets an A for, yeah, I guess you could say that, but, uh, I think the other thing he did, and I mean, he did it in the worst way possible, but it may prove to have some beneficial effects. I mean, basically what he articulated was a policy of, of victimization. The, the American people have been taken advantage of by foreigners for years, and it's their fault for cheating us. And it's his predecessors, his president's fault for not doing anything about it. And he was going to he was going to save all of us. Well, he didn't save all of us, but he did shine light on the practices of other countries that have worked to their advantage and not ours. And in the process, he completely ignored win-win outcomes where we have benefited from trade. He always views things as in the context of, of win-lose all the time. It's always zero-sum. And and if I've learned anything about trade, it's that it's not zero-sum. You know, you can uh, more trade can produce winners on both sides. Uh, but there have been losers, and by shining the light on that, I think he's he's changed the way that we think about trade policy. He's crystallized the way that Democrats think about trade policy, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna see something different going forward. It's not going to be return to pre-Trump, and so in that sense, he's had an impact. Well, win loses how it works in professional wrestling. So it's how it know. works in real estate as well. Yeah, I mean, keep in <laughs> That's mind. It. That's it. You're you're either the successful bidder for Turnberry or you're not. Yeah. Right. So that's the work experience that Donald Trump brought to the job as president. You either get foreclosed on or you don't. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, and it's all about leverage and things like that. So you can see where the habits came from. But before we leave the subject, though, I want to very sincerely credit the president for one other number. And I'm going to put on my hat as a recovering trade lobbyist. That number is 385. 385 members of the House of Representatives voted for the implementing bill for USMCA, or our beloved USMACA. We had come through to over 20 years of knockdown, dragout battles on trade agreements that passed by just a handful of votes. Back in my lobbyist days, I used to help manage absences so we could win a, a trade vote by two or three. Hmm. <laughs> and it was hair-raising. And what the president and his team did was, first, they, they actually accomplished a renegotiation, and then through a lot of hard work following the, the agreement with Mexico and Canada, they reworked it so that lots of members of Congress could support it. So that vote was 385 to 41, which is the highest. You're giving credit to the wrong people. This was the House of Representatives that did that. Well, yes. It was a classic Democratic script. The agreement's not good enough. You need to fix it. And the, the important decision, I think, was Nancy Pelosi's decision to try to fix it rather than simply oppose it. But the result was uh, sufficient changes, really, I think, engineered by the members of Congress to enable the vote that you're talking about. Yeah. If it hadn't changed via the House, I think it would have been the same close vote that we've we've had for the last 20 years. Well, you may be you may write about that, Bill. But if I had that number now and I was still in my old job, what I'd be doing is identifying all the members of Congress who voted for the agreement that I had a relationship with. And spending the next year reinforcing why that was a good vote. You know, this is the way you build support for any issue is you catch members of Congress doing something right. And whatever the recipe was, 385 is a lot of I votes on a, a controversial economic policy. So I'll take it. For you lobbyists out there that are listening, Scott has also mentioned some other ammunition you can use, which is poll data. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the poll data is a continuation of a trend that we've we've noticed for a long time, which is growing public support for trade. And the latest year numbers show a continuation of that trend. It continues to get larger. I think that's in part because people have become accustomed to a global world, you know, yep. and they see it. They see it every day. They see it not just in news. They see it on YouTube. They see it on Instagram. They see it in their interactions and they connect with it via the Internet. And it's been transformative of, of their attitudes. And I think that if you break it down on a partisan basis, as we have in, in previous podcasts, uh, it's actually the Democrats that have been more positive than the Republicans in recent years about trade. And that trend is continuing as well. So one of the useful things the lobbyists can do is send the poll data to their congressmen and rem- remind them, particularly the Democrats, that most Democrats think trade is a good thing and they ought to factor that into their thinking. The trend is their friend. There you go. Well, I can't imagine that there was ever a better lobbyist for trade on Capitol Hill than Scott Miller. How could anybody ever say no to you? <laughs> it happened, believe me. <laughs> Men of us bad a thousand, but uh, oh, it was man. a lot of fun while it, while it lasted. I bet. For the record, I never said no to Scott. <laughs> there you go. See, that's what I'm saying. So, all right, before we leave this subject, clearly the trade gap soared under Trump, the final figures show, but the end result of that to the next administration is what? What does Biden do with that? I think he's busy developing a new policy. I mean, Trump, I think, was really the only person that cared about bilateral deficits. I mean, for all economists, you know, it's sort of an accounting issue. It's not really a, a policy statement, whether it's it's bigger or not. Now, personally, I, I think that when it is consistently large for a very long period of time, that says something about your economy that you need to address. But it's long term and it's macroeconomic policy more than it is specific trade policy. But what's happened in, on the Democratic side, I think, has been rethinking on the part of, of the Democratic left, which I think is is constructive. For a long time, their policy was, was simply to oppose the trade agreements. Uh, and Scott knows this, this very well. All those closed votes were largely because of Democratic opposition from organized labor and, and from various NGOs. And I think that created a, an unhealthy dynamic. It allowed the other side, the business types, to paint the left as sort of Neanderthal protectionists. Uh, and I think a few years ago, the trade skeptics realized that it would be more productive talking about what they were for than what they were against. And they proceeded to do that. And the best example is exactly what Scott was talking about a few minutes ago, which is USMCA, because there you had organized labor saying, in essence, you know, we're prepared to play this game. We have specific things that we want. They're specific and they're attainable. I mean, they're not unrealistic. And, you know, there's a path here that would permit us to support the agreement if you give us what we want. And they proceeded to do that and played the game. And I think that demonstrated to them, but also others on the left, that if you participate in the process and if you define your goals positively and say, this is what we have to have, you can produce uh, win-win outcomes. You know, you can get an agreement that makes the business community happy and you can also address your issues. What that's led to now, though, is a debate over what are our issues, you know, and what you saw in the campaign was repeated over and over again. We want a trade policy that works for everybody. We want a trade policy that helps workers and not just big corporations. Okay, that's good. What does that mean? Yeah, what does it mean? And is it possible? I mean, one thing it means is enforcement. 
you know, let's get our trade partners, our agreement partners to enforce the laws that they've written themselves. And let's make sure that we enforce our own laws. You know, and that's not very controversial. Nobody's against enforcement. Yeah, enforcement's a good thing to go work on. It's necessary, but but not sufficient. I mean, the, the other two pieces are, are more pro- problematic. One piece is how do you make sure the benefits actually accrue to the workers? And I've always thought that's really a question of tax policy and economic policy. It's not just a question of a trade policy. A trade agreement opens doors, and it will, if it's done right, create more trade. Who gets the benefit of that trade depends on how the government in question decides to sort out the benefits and allocate the benefits. And that's a question of sort of other policies. The policy that's going to be dangerous, I think, is is the third element of, of what the Biden folks are thinking about and what the left is thinking about, which is reshoring. How do we bring jobs back to the United States? How do we make up for all those jobs that moved offshore under all those bad presidents that Trump used to talk about. And that's, that's going to be a very interesting debate. You know, what Biden has proposed is not trade measures, but tax measures, sticks and carrots to bring companies back. That'll take legislation. And I think that'll be a big debate. Here's a way to think about that, though. The starting point in today's economy, and this is from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, so I don't know where they got the number, but it's probably reliable. The average household in the United States has a higher living standard by about $18,000 a year because of imports, all right? You have better selection at a wider variety of prices. You have fresh fruits and vegetables all year long. But they've calculated the dollar value of all those imports at $18,000 per household. Now, if you start reshoring and taking away those imports, you cut into that $18,000. And that's, that's already in the pockets of sort of the average American. And so part of the reason... What's working now for average Americans in our trade policy is that they buy things at a greater array of prices and in general have a higher living standard because of both imports and exports. Well, so the question I have, though, is that the reporting this week is that the Biden administration appointed a bunch of staff to USTR on Monday that signal that the approach is going to be, as Bill said, skewing to the left. You know, these personnel appointments signal to the left wing of the Democratic Party that it's going to be a worker focused approach to trade, like you said. So where does that leave? What's what's your takeaway from the top USDR positions being filled this way? First of all, the positions that they're filling are not the ones you're talking about are not exactly policy positions. They're congressional affairs, they're intergovernmental affairs, they're media these are people that are going to interface with the public. These are people that are going to be articulating the government's message to Congress and to the public. And these are the people that are going to be getting the word out. These are not really the people that are going to be making the policy. They haven't been appointed yet. And if you look at the mixture, to me, it's typical. I, I mean, I having been through this on both ends. Uh, it's a mix of, I think, House staff that I'm sure Catherine knows, because that's where she's come from, and Biden campaign staff. And I'll tell you, that's nothing new. One of my more interesting experiences when I was in the government, my second day on the job at the Commerce Department, somebody came downstairs from the fifth floor, which was the secretary's floor, handed me a stack of resumes and said, here, hire two of these people. You know, it doesn't matter what for, hire them. And I looked through the resumes and they all had one thing in common. They'd worked on the campaign. They were all in their 20s. They all worked on the campaign. I did what I was told. I hired two of them. I stashed them in congressional and intergovernmental affairs. 
at one point I went in to visit one of them and I was amused. He had, he had two things on his desk. One was the telephone and the other one was a picture of him and his father and Bill Clinton fly fishing. <laughs> and I thought, now I understand why he's here. He had it down to the essence. But look, did he, did he do a good job? Yes, he did a good job. He ultimately went off to the White House and then went to law school. And I assume he's lawyering someplace in Arkansas. There you go. But when it comes to trade policy, my my experience, I think Bill would, would concur with this, is what it comes down to is coalition politics. Thanks to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the Congress regulates foreign commerce. And ultimately, you need a working majority in the House and Senate. Uh, some coalition, you got to put it together for the issue in order to make policy on the issue, to, to actually get it down to an agreement that passes and is implemented. And that keeps it relatively centrist over time. But I do think there's an opportunity, thanks to what happened on USMCA, for the coalition to look different and accomplish different things now than it did, say, 20 years ago. Interesting. Well, we'll have to watch that. I mean, so you think that these staff appointments don't really necessarily tip towards the policy positions that are going to be filled in and, and, and those appointments. And it won't doesn't really mean that the policy is going to skew left. I think there's two answers to that. I don't think these particular appointments mean very much as far as policy is concerned. But I'm inclined to think that when they start making the policy appointments, the deputies, for example, uh, they'll skew left as well. So I think your larger point is a valid one. The president wants a policy that is more uh, worker-oriented. And he also wants a policy where addressing climate change is an important part of trade policy. This is something that, you know, a lot of us at CSIS are working on. We just published a paper on this subject, and I think it's going to be a big issue. And it's going to be a challenge, frankly, for the environmentalists, because if you look at USMCA, they did not play USMCA the same way that Labor did. They announced their opposition early. Uh, It's not going far enough. you you recall Kamala Harris voted against it because it didn't do enough on the environment. But the way they played it was simply to come out against it. And the result of that was that they were dismissed by Lighthizer, which was entirely predictable. I mean, his attitude is, you know, if I can't get something out of you, why should I talk to you? And Trumpka was, was smart. Trumpka said, yeah, you might be able to get something out of us. Uh, so let's talk. And, you know, they did. And it was an outcome. I think the environmental side has to play the game. I mean, this gets back to the coalitions that Scott was talking about. If you yeah, want to exactly. get something, you've got to play the game. Right. And look, there was no question that labor was part of the coalition that passed USMCA and and got its policies in place. In the future, though, I think that the environmental movement ought to come to the conclusion that when it comes to climate policy and working with American businesses, they are pushing on an open door. If you look at statements by chairman of companies, by the business roundtable, you look at where investors are going on net zero. There is a lot of traction if they chose to be practical and to be part of the coalition. If they if they stay no, which was where they were in USMCA, they get ignored and they don't get what they want to accomplish. So let me ask this. What are you guys hearing from Capitol Hill? What is House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal, who's really the top trade lawmaker, saying? about all of this. What, what are you hearing about that? He gave a big speech and he, he came out. A lot of it was familiar. A lot of it was, was dealing with pending short-term issues. You know, we should finish the Kenya agreement. We should finish the UK agreement. He pointed out that, you know, as far as he was concerned, the only issue about the UK agreement was the Irish border. And if you're Irish American, this was a big deal. 
or even if you're Italian-American, it was a big deal for Speaker Pelosi. But that got solved in a way that was acceptable. So Neil's all for finishing that. He was for doing GSP. The one thing he was he did not mention at all, either in Q&A or in his speech, was renewing Trade Promotion Authority, which is a little bit surprising because it expires in six months. And if the administration wants to negotiate anything new, they're going to need it. Uh, that was missing. I think he said some things about climate, but I don't think he said anything that was uh, surprising. Did he, Scott? My sense was that he was giving the administration some room by not mentioning climate specifically, by not mentioning renewal of negotiating authority, and by focusing on enforcement and sort of the pending short-term issues. I think he was he was steering a wide berth to let the administration figure, it, figure out where it wants to go and take the lead. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You're right about enforcement, and this, I think, validates what we were saying earlier. Enforcement is easy. Everybody's for enforcement. It's not controversial. You're not going to find anybody in the business community standing up saying, no, we shouldn't be enforcing the law. You know, nobody says that. So it's a safe thing to do. But it also echoes an important democratic priority. And because they've complained in the past, I think legitimately, that what USTR has done historically is they negotiate agreements, and then they move on to the next one. And there really isn't anybody minding the store to find out what happens, you know, after they sign the paper. And I mean, in fairness, it's not all up to them. They don't have they don't have enforcement officials. They don't have, you know, guys with badges and investigators. You know, other agencies do. But, you know, the United States over the years has not really been very good at making sure that once approved, the agreements are actually adhered to. So I think finally they're saying this is really ought to be a really important element of our policy. And frankly, you know, if your policy is also we're not going to negotiate any new agreements for the time being, why not concentrate on enforcement? You got to have something to do. All right, gentlemen. Finally, we got to finish with Bill's favorite subject, the WTO, Director General. And the U.S. has given its formal backing to Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala to lead the World Trade Organization, removing the final obstacle to her bid to become the first woman and the first African to run the trade organization. So what challenges is Ngozi going to inherit as WTO Director General? Well, I would say restoring the organization's credibility. It's foundering on all three fronts. I'm sure Scott will want to elaborate. We've only had one successful multilateral negotiation in the last 25 years. Uh, That was for the trade facilitation agreement. Doha is somewhere between dead and on life support, depending on who you talk to. Trump did nothing to move forward the environmental goods agreement, the trade and services agreement. You've got fisheries sitting out there. You've got all these unfinished things. And if she wants the organization to be credible, credible, she's got to bring some of those across the finish line. She's got to get the appellate body and the dispute settlement mechanism back operating again. There's a deal there that can be grasped. You know, I think the Biden administration will will engage in ways that the Trump administration did not. Uh, their, their view is not that different about what the problems are, but I think they're more focused on finding a, a negotiated solution. And she's got to get countries to meet their obligations about notification. They've got to start submitting their subsidies and notifying, and they simply haven't been doing that and getting away with it. Yeah, look, it's a tough job. I mean, I wish her all the luck in the world, but I don't know why she wanted the job, to be honest with you. It's a very difficult. It's been a very frustrating job for the people who have held it. And uh, look, trust broke down a long time ago. Member interests diverge remarkably and more all the time. So there are reasons it's difficult. 
Uh, and so while I'm glad the issue is resolved and I hope the organization can move forward, I looked to a speech earlier this week given by Alan Wolf. He's a friend of the trade guys. He's an American lawyer, probably the dean of the trade law bar before he became deputy director general of the WTO. And so when Alan Wolf speaks, a lot of us listen. And his remarks were quite direct at the the gaps between what the, what is needed from the World Trade Organization and what exists today. So there's a lot of work to do. All right, guys. Well, we'll leave it at that. We hope our audience will tune back in next week, same trade time, same trade channel, and we'll have much, much more to talk about. There's Thanks, always guys. something. Thanks. Always something. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.